Hello and welcome to Be the Serpent, a podcast of extremely deep literary merit, with your classy and sophisticated hosts, Alexandra Rowland, Freya Mask, and Jennifer Mace. On today's episode, we're discussing The Traitor Baru Cormorant by Seth Dickinson, the movie In Time, and the fanfic Freeport by Maldoror Chant. Welcome to episode 11. It's all about the money, money, money. I'm Alex, the Tulip Mania one. I'm Freya, the English Woolen Caps one. And I'm Macy, the dot com bottle one. We are three redheaded fantasy authors. And today we're talking about economics. I'm Woo. so happy. Uh, this is one of my favorite things. But first, what are we reading, fellow serpents? I've been reading a lot of things which I should not have been doing because I have just started <laughs> my descent into Edit's Hell. From which you two have just emerged. Hooray! Welcome <laughs> to Edit's Hell. Welcome to Edit's Hell. There are marshmallows. See, I, you, you two were just saying that from the other side of Edit's Hell, <laughs> where I'm imagining you lying on lounges with martinis in your hands going, it'll be over soon. It's fine. That is it's fine. That is extremely correct. We ate three cakes. We ate three cakes. Well, that's, well, I, when I finish my edits, I'm just going to make you get on to chat with me and I'm going to eat cake and you have to watch. <laughs> That is entirely fair and proportionate. <laughs> so what I have been reading while avoiding my edits uh, is The Henchman of Zender by K.J. Charles. Which mm, was, I'm looking forward to that. It's it's delightful. So I read the original Anthony Hope uh, Victorian pulp adventure novella, which kind of started the Ruritanian genre, so The Prisoner of Zender, when I heard that K.J. Charles was doing a queer retelling satire kind of thing of it. And it's a lot of fun. But, of course, K.J. Charles's version is infinitely better because <laughs> it has not only as their swashbuckling, but it does much more interesting things with the women. Uh, so the gender roles are a lot better. There's obviously lots of gay sex. It's, you know, it's still got lots of swashbuckling and swords. And the voice she uses for the narrator is fantastic. Like, it's a really strong first-person voice. It's really funny. So highly recommend. Whereas I have been reading my reward for finishing my edits because I'm sorry, Alex and Freya, but I love my agent best because she gave me her copy of Spinning Silver. Oh, yes. The advanced review copy of Spinning yes. Silver. Uh, which I am womanfully not going to talk about too much because Freya's is in the mail to her. Yes. Because... I, I guess that's how we do this in the surface world. <laughs> well, that can um, also be a reward for post-edits for me, then. There we go. You have How long does it take yep. for a parcel to get to Australia? Oh, 12 years. So you have 12 Very years. Very good. 12 years to do your edits in. And I am also reading Spinning Silver because I managed to get my hands on a advanced review copy at the Nebulas conference, which Macy and I were just at last weekend. It was, which was so fantastic. much fun. It was so much fun. We had badge ribbons. Spinning Silver, I will second Macy's recommendation. Go pre-order it. Uh, when is it on sale? Um, July 10th, July 11th, something July like 10th, that. yeah. So for any listeners who have been living under a fantasy rock, this is Spinning Silver by Naomi Novik. And it is Correct. her... So for, is it her next big standalone fantasy after Uprooted? Yes, it's similar yep. in tone, I would say, but it's certainly not a sequel and it's not the same characters or the same world. It's based but on a you... short story she wrote. Is that right? For the, um, the Starlet yes. Wood? Yes. Yes, correct. I've read that short story, so I'm really excited to see what happens when it's a full book. It is 
very excellent. Yes, she's so good. She's amazing. I can't. I can't. <laughs> so Macy has a cool piece of news as well. Yes. So I have an anthology that has probably come out by the time this airs. It's called Skies of Wonder. And it is tales of airship pirate wizards. And it's so specific. I love it, it is so specific, but we have 13 stories of airship pirate wizards and they're all different and there's golems and there's paper airships and I have lesbians and nobody dies on page. Um, no, the lesbians are fine. They're fine. They are all fine. They only get stabbed a little bit. Only a little bit stabbed, yes. Only That's a little fine. bit stabbed. Uh, who, who else has stories in the anthology? So that's a number of my Viable Paradise classmates, including some of the folks uh, that you might see on Twitter. Amanda Hackwith, John Appel is the one running it, Joe Miles. And it's going to be out in EPUB. And so any reliable EPUB vendor near you will have a copy. Fantastic. I'm looking forward to it. Excellent. Me too. So moving on to the episode itself. We wanted to do some of these Be the Serpent episodes to be about various aspects of world building because we all really, really love world building, as we may have mentioned briefly last episode. Because we're nerds! We are nerds! And because it's objectively the best part. <laughs> Absolutely. So we wanted to highlight some stories that do various uh, topics of world building in interesting ways and also take a craft perspective as to how we might play with them ourselves in our own work and how obviously you can too if you are a writing type. And the first of the topics that we've decided to talk about is economics, as we mentioned. Da, da, da. So, Macy, do you want to introduce our tent poles for this week? Sure. So, we are talking about, as usual, three tent poles this week. And the first one is a book called The Traitor Baru Cormorant by Seth Dickinson, which came out a couple of years ago now. And it features a gay main character who I adore because she is not a nice person oh, she's so horrible a... i love it she's she's the best she's ridiculously like cartoonishly she's not cartoonishly anything but like she is a very unlikable main character and i adore her forever she is mine and she is very slytherin she is very very slytherin this book does some really great things with economics and conquered nations and uses a financial an induced financial crisis as a method of war and it's awesome. We're going to be talking a bunch about how it does that. The second tentpole is my favourite fanfiction. That's a lie. I have like 50 favourites. But one of my favourites, which is Freeport, which is in Gundam Wing fandom, because we know how much this podcast loves giant robots. Nice. So much. Very nice. Good linking there. I will. I would like it put on record that Alex and I read two hundred thousand words of fan fiction <laughs> in a fandom with which I don't think either of us are all familiar. Because... That's a lie. I only read the first eight chapters because Macy said that's all I had to do. <laughs> well, I read the entire thing because I love Macy. Oh, uh, oh well, I see how. It is. <laughs> well, well, actually, then. I read. All right, I read the first eight chapters because I love Macy, and then I kept going because it is actually a really engaging story. But, it is really good. I'm enjoying it so far and I will probably read the rest. And it does some fascinating things again with world building and space anarchy, but like economic anarchy. It's a wild, wild world. And then our last one is a movie that is charming and delightful, which Freya introduced us to called In Time. And I don't even, did this even come out in theatres? I don't remember it existing. Like I, in think, I think it must have because I remember seeing a trailer for it. 
in cinemas, but I think it would have had a very brief release, if anything. That's and fair. it kind of just vanished off the radar. But it was always at the back of my mind, and then I watched it recently because I, I had it. And I thought, oh, okay, this is actually a very relevant one for this particular topic. Yes, because it, it is actually a very well-world-built movie in a world that replaces currency with time off your life. And that's just a very quick summary of the main pieces we're going to be talking about this week. And I know that Alex had an introduction planned for us. Yes. So the first question is, why is economics so important to world building? Is it important? What is economics anyway? <laughs> is money required? So the first quote that I have for you is from a female playwright from Suriname. Uh, Afra Ben, who wrote in 1677, money speaks sense in a language all nations understand. Now, one of my favorite books about world build, or not about world building, one of my favorite books about money is The History of Money by Jack Weatherford, in which he uh, cites this quote from Afra Ben and says that not only does money speak sense in a language all nations understand, but money imposes sense on whatever society it conquers. And it does so in a way that subjugates all other institutions and systems. Uh, so once you have money in your culture, it becomes kind of the central fixation of mm. the culture and it overtakes everything else and subsumes everything else into it. And it's so interesting to watch humans get so fascinated with this thing that they kind of made up for themselves <laughs> just to make themselves uh, and their lives a little bit more simple and efficient. I think that's that's interesting thinking about the two, ten two of the temples just very briefly because I think Baru Cormorant shows that imposition happening yes. and Freeport shows the reversal of that process. That's a really good yes. point. So another, another quote about the money overtaking all other institutions in a in a system is that also in the 17th century a japanese writer named saikaku ihara wrote birth and lineage mean nothing money is the only family tree for a townsman though mothers and fathers give us life it is money money alone which preserves it economics is important because it carries the prerequisite of money you can't have an economy without having quote unquote money in some form although we might not necessarily mean currency mm. uh, economics is comes from Alex's fun fact linguistics corner is going to be basically the whole episode. <laughs> um, money or econ the word economics comes from the Greek roots, which basically mean keeping a household hmm. and the running of a household. You can't have an, an economy without having money in some form. And money is important because it implies the existence of a market. And a market, when you think about it, is a piece of technology. And it is the one piece of technology that made us shift gears from a loose collection of humans to a civilization. Hmm. I mean, I'd say though that you don't. Hmm, you can have an economy. You can have an economy without money. You can have a barter economy that is not formalized on any one thing as a source of currency. It's just a very immature economy. Like, I think you can still call the study of uh, methods of wealth in that situation economics. And does that then progress to things like thinking about social capital and cultural capital? And if you think about the wealth of a nation being in the, you know, the manpower that it has or the people that it has or the culture that it has, is that in itself an economy? Do we have to pull it down then to, even in quotes, money or currency? I think the point that I'm trying to make is that economics is woven into everything we do right it's 
a transfer of like money is a transfer of power in a way, right? I'm thinking about wealth as power and, and the ability to do what you want is in many ways based on how much freedom you have from the lower tiers of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Right. And I think that's what, if we can, if we don't mind moving into talking about the first temple, then I think that's what in time as a movie actually illustrates very explicitly. Because we already mm. think of in our society of time being money. And we know that even if we've never sort of made it quite that specific and that explicit, because if you're a wealthy person, you have the luxury of not filling your time with tasks that you can pay other people to do. Mm. So if you don't want to clean your house or look after your children or, you know, wash your car or look after your garden, you can pay other people for their time and labor to do those things for you, which then frees up your time and the time in it, in that sense, is the luxury. It's, it's the, the freedom, as you said. And obviously, we don't, in most Western societies now, think about having servants in the way that, uh, you know, used to be the accepted way of life for people above a certain class. But it's essentially working on the same system. It's about time and labour costs being the same thing. And what in time does is sets up a system where everybody has is born with a year's worth of time that kicks in when they turn, was it 25? Yes, so mm -hmm. yeah. basically the, the, the key point also though is they're genetically engineered to never age past 25. Yes, which is a great excuse to fill a movie of full of young, beautiful people, <laughs> uh, but also means you end up with these fantastic sort of cognitive dissonance scenes of people introducing their daughter, their wife and their mother, who are three almost identical looking <laughs> women and everybody you know, you have these really nice family relationships between people who are all 25. I, I think that this is a great example of a an economic dystopia, right? Yeah, so, absolutely. Well, this is why we were going back to um, how economics is woven through everything. I think that we can talk about economics in the context of any of our previous episodes. Specifically, so this one we can talk about in time and the concept of dystopia or utopia. So if you have if you have time past the one year that you get on your clock when you turn 25, you can live forever. And you can keep spending that time buying things and having a grand old time. But the same society with the exact same rules, if you are struggling to feed yourself or feed your family, the second you turn 25, you have spent that down into debt. And suddenly you do not have time. So it's both a dystopia and a utopia. And it's set out very much like a, the kind of dystopia slash utopia that you get in things right. like the Hunger Games, with that sense of the centre being where all of the the rich people with all the time live and everything spreading out from there. And, and these, having the time zones, which I thought was nice. There's this quote that I wanted to mention uh, from the movie that kind of sums this up. One of the re rich men saying to the protagonist, this is merely Darwinian capitalism. Because it is about living forever. And that was one of the things we talked about briefly in the Empire episode as well, is that the idea of the ultimate richness and the ultimate power being longevity and legacy and finding a way to live forever and influence things forever and do what you want to do forever. I think, I think that it's a fun movie and it does some cool stuff. It doesn't really examine quite all of the implications economically speaking on having a population where some of them do live forever. It digs into that a little bit. I'll say one thing, I can say one thing that I liked about uh, In Time was the idea of the way they re 
mastered and reworked language, like a lot of the linguistic ticks that we have to do with time and making, making it very obvious that they are to do with time as value. So the idea of living day to day was mm. something. So the people around the social class of the protagonist are the kind of people who wake up with more or less a day's worth of time uh, left. And so they have to go out and earn more to and earn mm. enough to then spend. And the, the reappropriation of like common time related idioms, like, Hey, mister, you got a minute. Yeah. <laughs> Which instead of meaning like, do you have a second to talk to me? It means like, do you literally have a minute? I'm asking you to give me a minute of your life. And this is such a great tip if you're doing any world building of your own is that the way that you can demonstrate a really deep thought about some of the economics of your world is just working it into the day-to-day -day language. How do people talk about value? What are their metaphors that they reach for? Because that's the currency they're used to that they will use to say whether something is important or worth money in their parlance. And so if you're thinking about how to work economics into the thing that you're building, is that something you always have to do if you're doing a project for fun, like with fanfic, for example? Well, no, I don't think you ever have to do something. <laughs> it's just a thing that you do because it's fun or because you're a huge nerd and you think that money is like people being people really hard and you're interested in people. That's the sort of person who does economics. And one of the points of fan fiction is either to take the characters that you're interested in and put them into a thought experiment, so an AU of some kind, or it is or it is the appeal of someone else having done all the world building for you. So if you are interested in a particular economic world building, then it gives you a chance to play around in the sandbox that someone else has created. But I would say that Freeport, our second tentpole, is much more the other way around. It's someone who's taken some existing characters and the basics of an existing world building structure and has said, well, let's play around with the idea of anarchy in the economic sense. And it's because it is, it's a story about those characters, obviously, but it's also very much um, a very detailed meditation of let's play around with how this would work in practice. I have, I have a question about fan fiction and economics for you guys. So for Example, a slow burn coffee shop AU. What is the economics of being able to give away so many muffins for free? To I your mean, bro, like none of those coffee shops are still in business. None of those coffee shops are in business. They're terrible. You do not deserve to be a small business owner. Oh, I don't know. Look, the whole point of the is that everybody ends up in the coffee shop at the end. So if you are doing an initial outlay of free muffins, you are attempting to get a return by making oh, a loyal customer who will then bring their entire found family friendship group to hang out in your coffee shop. So this, there is some economics there. Maybe it's my personal taste, but I prefer the Tsundere type where the coffee shop employee is like charging their crush like 10 times as much. <laughs> it's like, fuck yeah. you in particular. I'm gonna charge you 20 bucks for that muffin and the crush buys it anyway. And Tsundere is like, oh. Oh, but that's really the, that's the like charge me. for being too beautiful. <laughs> well, that's that's win-win because that means that you you fall in love and you're suddenly making a shitload more money than you really should be. Exactly. Yeah. But I think that with Freeport, uh, Maldoror is doing something a little bit different and just having a whale of a time world building the heck out of what if we had no currency and complete lack of law and no government on a space colony? How does that work? It worked because it was in space. It seemed to say... Look, the reason that this actually works, no currency, everybody 
does what they can or what they want to do but the impetus that everyone has to contribute to the good of society or at least the survival of society is the fact that they are on a mess of a space colony <laughs> that at any point could <laughs> be ripped apart by vacuum so <laughs> contributing to society doing upkeep on the vacuum seals or on the airlocks and doing upkeep on the infrastructure is actually a matter of all of these people not dying horribly in space and I think yes. it's sort of saying as a thought experiment, if you've got that kind of threat sort of hanging over everyone's existence at all times, in that case, then this system can work. But I'm trying to think of a way that it would work without the looming threat of space death. Is it a boat on the deep sea? Um, I mean, a little bit. Like, boats do have to have, like, daily upkeep and... If the boat sinks in the middle of the sea, then every well, it's not quite the same because there is the chance that you could survive by clinging to some debris. <laughs> Whereas if the space station fails, you're literally all dead, um, unless you can make it to some kind of small airlocked space. The stakes are much higher on a space station than they would be on a boat. And this is why all of y'all should listen to this. They should read this, listeners, because the descriptions of how utterly fucking horrifying the space station is <laughs> is and it's from the point of view character who's just comes up is like oh god everything here is so dirty oh god everything someone is call osha all the time. for the love of god someone call osha it literally smells like death it smells yeah. sorry of recyc which recycling is the euphemism for like the undertakers Gross. so literally i didn't death. catch that literally death and somehow, like, obviously it is to the writer's credit that they managed to do a very uh, realistic transition of our point of view character from what am I doing here, this is the worst place in the world, to actually this is a kind of society that works for me. But that's the point of the, of the fanfic, is that it says which kinds of people would this appeal to, and how can mm. I write these characters that we already know the story of, or at least the backstory of, and why is this a good system for them? I think you wouldn't be able to do it with most characters from most pieces of media. But it's a very good interaction. I mean, I'm not as I said, not familiar with Gundam Wing, but it obviously gives you enough background of those characters, what they've been through, what their upbringing was, what sort of society they've lived in, to show you why it works for them in particular. And I do maintain, and I will say I do push this fic on professional writers of my acquaintance, because I think the way that they built this anarchic system is really something quite original um and we can learn from it this is a hope this is a hope punk uh shit station in space yeah it is yeah i would agree with that but pulling it back a bit to our professional tentpole for the week do we want to talk a little bit about baru cormorant and structured economics in an imperial system yeah going the other direction from hope punk, yes. i would say <laughs> <laughs> this is the least hope punk, and I haven't read Poppy War yet, which I hear is even less, but, you know. Just from the beginning of Poppy War, yeah. But there was this great quote from Baru Cormorant. Her job in Ordwin was to make sure tax and trade money went to Falcrest. Yay, so her whole job, resource funneling. Yay, resource funneling. Her whole job is to liquefy this conquered nation without entirely destroying it, and carefully siphon away its innards for the good of the empire yes so if you listen to our last episode 
uh, Freya gave us that beautiful quote from Machiavelli about the three different ways that you can control a a land that you, you you the empire have just conquered and it's what what was it again Freya it's uh reduce them to rubble go and live there yourself or institute local governance and then tax the shit out of them yep pretty much <laughs> yeah so Barrow, Barrow Cormorant is a great example of the third one yeah and as I said earlier it also does at the beginning of Barrow Cormorant you see the first stage of that Jack Weatherford quote that you mentioned, Alex, about it imposing itself on the society that's been conquered mm. and subjugating yes. all other institutions and systems. And I, it's been a little while since I read Barry Cormorant, but the first few chapters do stand out in my mind as being really memorable, as seeing this, this person observing the slow change from her of her island society's economy and the way mm. it gets changed and subjugated and slowly falls under the banner of the empire that has taken over through the use of their money until suddenly you can't buy anything until you're using the money of your conquerors. It's such a great text for looking at the power of economics wielded as a weapon. Yes, absolutely. I also have another uh, recommendation for anyone who's interested in that kind of thing. Um, so if you liked Barrow Cormorant, you will definitely like a book by one of my favorite authors of all time, K.J. Parker, who wrote this wonderful book called The Folding Knife, which is about a banker in kind of a classical Roman setting who gets elected to be the patrician of this city-state. And it's all about economics because he, of course, as a banker, uh, is very concerned with money, knows how money works, knows how to move money around and how to make it dance to get it to do the things that you need it to do. Uh, so, for example, in this book, he has to debase the coinage to be able to uh, pay for a war campaign. And it goes into all of these details about the cost of things that you would not generally get attention paid to in a fantasy novel. Because let's face it, most fantasy novels are not that great at economics. Uh, but if you're looking for an example of economics done really, really well, K.J. Parker is where you should go immediately well now i feel like for yuletide i need the protagonist of this story and baru cormorant sitting across one another from a table oh glaring god. suspiciously and drinking oh god oh it, it'd be real bad it'd be real <laughs> real bad because here's the thing here's the thing about kj parker and i will give you a little bit of a warning going into it there are two things that kj parker is not good at kj parker is brilliant at economics kj parker is brilliant at writing about technology and about the details of things like blacksmithing or fencing, all of these these wonderful, wonderful, rich little details. KJ Parker is not good at writing, number one, women, mm. and number two, people who aren't assholes. <laughs> uh, so just if you go into a KJ Parker book, just go with that uh, sort of caveat. Well, I'd say that Barry Cormorant is full of people who are assholes also. But at least half of them are women, and they're amazing. But Barrow Cormorant has a lot of soft beans that get squished into being assholes. Yeah, fair enough. KJ Parker has two kinds of women, one of whom is selfish and greedy in the extreme, and one of whom is naive to the point of a character flaw. Sigh. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. but I will read this book, because you keep telling me to read this book. So. It's so good. <laughs> I really, like, even all those flaws set aside... I really fucking love KJ Parker. So I, I want to bring us into talking about 
because I mentioned like fantasy novels are often notoriously bad at doing economics. So I, I would like us to sort of move in that direction. But first, before we talk about how people fail at doing <laughs> money in, in books a lot, I think we have to talk about what is money? And I would like to lead you on a little bit of a thought exercise if you would like to come on this journey with uh -huh. me. So get a dollar out of your wallet. Look at this dollar. What do you see? You see a dollar, don't you? No, you do not. What do you see? You see an abstract representation of value, something you can go to the store and buy a candy bar with. Sure, you may see that, but that's not what you see. The thing that you see is paper and ink. Excuse me. And That's very America-centric. Well, if I pulled okay. a dollar what out do of you my see pocket, you... a gold coin. Quite literally. We don't have dollar okay. We don't have dollar notes. We have okay, gold so, coins. So we, that's <laughs> fancy, Freddie. That's fancy. Sorry. Thank you for ruining my point. <laughs> All right, let's continue this very American. You see a physical object with decorations on it. Correct. Yes. Correct. Either paper and ink or a bit of metal with like some designs stamped on it what you see is a story you see a physical object as macy said that has a story imprinted on it in some way and that kind of proves that currency and therefore economics is imaginary as i mentioned earlier in the episode it's something that humans just made up to yes. make their lives a little bit more efficient and simplified i think one of the writers that actually puts this on the page very explicitly is terry pratchett because the later mm. Discworld books are all about this kind of uh, digging into what makes a society and a city, in a, especially, but a society tick and how do things like money work. And so his book, Making Money, is very much about this idea. And it begins with the main character realizing that the penny stamp, which he developed in the previous book about mm. him, has become a de facto currency because it is a very small, light, flat piece of paper that has an agreed upon value. And so people have been sending stamps in the post as a way of sending money, because up to this point, money has just been metal. Mm. And when he realizes that people are using stamps as currency, that's when he gets the idea that you can have a piece of paper, which is what a stamp is, that represents any value at all. And so a lot of the book is about exploring that idea of belief. And people, as long as people believe that a piece of paper is worth a certain amount, then it does. That's that's what it that's what it represents. The be the beautiful thing about Terry Pratchett though is he chooses a con man to do this with. This is the character who has this journey is a con man. Yes, because he's all about creating value out of nothing. Yes, that's exactly. His, that's his job. Poetic beauty in comedy. And the other thing that's examined in making money is the idea of having a standard. So whether you're basing your currency on the gold standard or any other kind of standard, but it is what has to lie at the root of belief about representative currency is it, mm. the idea that if you take that piece of paper, which in itself does not have much worth to the bank, eventually the bank will give you that much gold or the even though you will you will never actually do that. But here's the thing. Gold is also fiat currency because gold also does not have actually any inherent value. You can't eat it. You can't wear it. It won't keep you warm in the winter. It, like all gold is good for is exchanging for goods. So gold only has value because we assigned it value. Well, but it, it has certain physical qualities that make it much better suited for that than many other things. What I wanted to say a minute ago was that this is exactly what Baru Cormorant does when she first comes to Ordwin 
to break um, sorry spoilers 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 for baron cormorant um she breaks the back of a rebellion by debasing her own currency and it's beautiful um she basically breaks all faith in the currency deliberately by printing loans that she knows she can't back and by giving away the basis of her currency system and it, it's beautiful and it's such a great example uh, an illustration rather of the power of that economy whereas moist ends up running a bank that is based on the belief of the existence of a central store of gold which he discovers has been stolen or embezzled, <laughs> embezzled away by the previous owners of the bank uh, and so this beautiful you know con belief structure that is paper money that he has built uh, threatens to collapse when people find out that the gold has gone and not uh, unreasonably assume that the con man stole all the gold. Uh, and what he does is ends up putting Ankh-Morpork on the golem standard because a golem is something that in, in the, the world of the Discworld is a sort of an immortal worker that doesn't need food and doesn't need anything that normal people would buy with money. And, and so they represent labour. And by extension, they represent time. And so they are a very inherently valuable thing on which to base the currency. And so that's where the book ends up. It's great. Well, so what are some other methods of value that aren't money that we see in science fiction and fantasy? I think people thinking of uh, information as currency is a very common one. Hmm. And it's not, it's not confined to science fiction and fantasy. It's a very common thing that you would see in almost anything to do with court intrigue or politics. But the idea of uh, secrets as currency, and there's even a um, Hunger Games character that makes that explicit as well, I think. I'm not sure that I would ever it has been a while. that as like a system of currency as opposed to something of value that you can sell, which to me are a little bit different. Okay. No, that's fair. I was thinking about when I was thinking about fantasy books with things that have value that are swapped and traded. Mm, that's but fair. it's true. It's true. How would you then place... How do you then base an economy on information? That would be an interesting experiment. That would be cool. I really love the way Max Gladstone had a whole economy based on fragments of soul. Yeah, it's very similar to the way that In Time does it with with the use of of time as currency. Because you have a you have a set amount of soul, but you can get more soul from other people and mm -hmm. then spend it. And same the same thing is is happening with In Time, where you have you begin with a certain amount of time and then you can trade it and get more or spend it. And it's just, this, it's a really beautiful and smart authorial decision to directly link your system of value to damage or pain of the characters. Although I haven't read actually enough of Max's work to figure out yet if what happens when you run out of soul stuff. I think you, they, they get things like hangovers, like they, they feel kind of ill when it runs low. So like it does have an impact on your health, is my understanding. And does it replenish over time? I don't recall. Like, do you grow it back? I don't remember. So has uh, rather of you read then anything where they do that more explicitly with magic, so power rather than soul? So the idea of having a finite amount of a resource, and hmm. once you've spent all of it or given it away, there's you have no magic, you have no power, you can't do anything, but you can build up a store of power with which to do things like labor and time. Do you know of anything where that's an explicit economic system? I did. 
I did. I read a thing, and yep. I'm going to. It's it's kind of totally not what you're asking, um, because it's a parody Harry Potter fanfic. Where? <laughs> <laughs> okay, no, okay, it's, all right. No, hang on, hang on. Hear me out. <laughs> Hear me out. It's it's not a parody per se, but anyway, um, it's a this amazing Harry Potter fanfic where a D and D style wizard gets dropped in hogwarts and has like a set number of spells per day and has spell slots <laughs> and has to deal oh, with dear. and all of the wizards are like what the fuck is happening to you why are you like this <laughs> well if and you're going to do economic world building that way then it would have to also be the de facto currency of that society so the idea <laughs> that you've fair. got magic that you can do things with uh so you can use it to clean your house or accomplish but, other tasks but I that think... is that is what is used in trade but I think that it things. should be in D&D, right? Like, if you have all of this power and you can use it in that way, then why isn't there economy? And this is we're leading on to our next question, which is what happens when you half-ass your economics <clears throat> D&D. Um, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it be an economi economic tradable system? I don't know. I, I don't know. I you know can't really transfer a spell slot to someone else, though. That Can you not? That's fair. But you can do things no, with you that can't. spell. If you are not a mage... <laughs> Like, you can do things with that spell slot that cost opportunity for you, and you would be paid to do it. But I think the idea is, the whole idea is transferability, though. That's with fair. The economy. Well, if, listeners, if you know of any fantasy books that do this, or other yes. uh, things that do this, let us know, because I'm very interested in this, and I need somebody else to put one in front of me so I don't start building it myself, because I have enough to work on already. Oh, now I'm torn. Now I want to see Freya's. Don't send us things, listeners. Don't do it. Don't listen to her. Send us everything. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to talk now about fantasy novels where everything costs one gold and how much that is really annoying. I feel seen. Why, why is like, for, for one thing, I have a couple points. Why, why is gold the only coin that they have? Like, so, okay, okay. Sometimes, sometimes... Well, sometimes they, first of all, they must have a fuckload of gold. <laughs> yeah. um, they must have like an, as much gold as they do copper and as, as we do copper, I mean. Uh, so that's going to cause some havoc with things, <laughs> basically. Um, so we have like, in a slightly better quality of fantasy novel, you do get one copper, one silver, one gold. But the exchange rate for them is not really making a lot of sense. Like, usually it's something like 20 uh, copper pieces equal one silver piece, and like five silver pieces equal one gold piece, which means that 100 copper pieces equal one gold piece. And again, that's all fucked up. That's like all fucked up. Well, yeah, because I was, what was I reading? I was reading maybe Seeing Like a State uh, by Scott about um, how in ancient China there would be people running around with like silver and scissors and like cutting off little bits of silver as currency and that was how you did it it's it, you you would halve your oh, coins yeah. and quarter your yeah, coins yeah that's where you get the, the term farthing exactly because that's one quarter of a right. coin hmm. and pieces that's of eight yes but i mean that's not even like the worst of it how on earth did the orc army Yes. Get its funding. Like <laughs> there is no there's no sensical economy in the Lord of the Rings. Like if you look <laughs> at the human societies, you can sort of see that places like Gondor are a functioning, you know, society and probably have their own currency that's just kind of hand waved a bit. And I must admit it's been a very long time since I read The Lord of the Rings. But if you have a look at the forces of darkness, 
Where, where is this coming from? Who is paying these orcs? Who is feeding these orcs? Mercenaries are expensive. Are they all naked? Where are they getting their fabric from? Yeah, like, where are they? Are they? Are there shepherd orcs up in the mountains? Are they weaving wool? Are they growing flax like Alex does? Like, I have never grown you, flax in my life. You told us. I mean, they seem they, even if even the ones who are only dressed in like scraps of leather, you know, at a certain point you have to have like cured that leather, possibly from a sheep that you killed for dinner, maybe. But that's a really big army. Like the whole point of the Lord of the Rings is, you look out and there's this enormous army. Armies are fucking expensive. Where is this coming from? What was the what was the number? It was like one one soldier costs two hundred like people supporting them. Uh, the something like that. Yeah, I don't know, but yeah, it's big. There's some standard, right? Like you can't, you can't, you can't do the thing. That's not how it works. <laughs> and you see work. these systems of like the trees are being pulled down, and there's these like multi-level forges of beating the hammers. Where are they getting the ore from? Like, is there like a mine just next door? Where are they? <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. And are they are they practicing scientific forestry? Because friend, we have some problems next generation. I have a like, feeling that uh, Saruman did not go in for scientific forestry. Like, just a suspicion. <laughs> and Harry Potter. Oh, Harry Potter. Look, at least there isn't a there's an attempt to monetize things <laughs> and put value on things. It just doesn't make any sense. Who's farming? Where is their food coming from? Are they conjuring it all? Does magic conjure like sustenance? I mean, apparently it does, because like we we see people do that. But I mean, I see. So this is the thing. I can't know. I can't decide if like, this is something that I read in a fanfic that attempted to make <laughs> sense of this. Or whether it was actually in canon, because it's been a very long time since I read canon. I've read a yeah, lot yeah. of Astolite Harry Draco in the meantime. <laughs> is that the idea is that the cow cells make the food in the kitchens, and then there is some kind of spell that makes it appear on the tables. But that does still, at a certain point, someone has yeah, to go but... and buy the raw materials for the house elves I'm to then turn into food. That like the house elves either have some muggle disguise or there is like a very confused Tesco somewhere in like Wiltshire <laughs> that is just used to like these costumes slightly shorter than normal people with long ears buying up the No beef. no no, it's 12 house yeah. elves in a trench coat. <laughs> <laughs> Come in and be like we need all of your pumpkin. All of oh, no. is really into pumpkin. <laughs> Also, how do they have pumpkin at all times of the year? I mean, pumpkin, pumpkin juice. At all time of the year. Pumpkin juice is fair. Yeah, but... Stasis spells, Alex. Stasis oh, spells. Fair. It's just a lot of pumpkins. <laughs> it's just a lot. Why don't they base their economy on pumpkins? Uh, because I can't... They have so many pumpkins. Yeah, write a stern letter to J.K. Rowling. We will. I have some I'd rather not. But I have a fascinating note in the next bit here that says, spoilers, don't read this bit. I'm serious. You guys don't read it. Oh, yeah. That's Alex. Which is that... terrifying because it means Alex is about to pull something out Yes, of her it hat. means that it's time for Alex's Fun Times World Building Corner. Oh, God. Everyone's oh, God. so excited for this, right? Oh, God. So we thought that it would be fun to spend a little bit of time kind of showing you how to do it in real time. And uh, 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 that's thought, optimistic as to our like confidence. Showing us how we do it. Perhaps. You were the one who suggested this, Macy. Hush I, I your just, face. I Hush refuse your to claim competence. I, I refuse to claim competence. That's fair. Well, <laughs> we're going to do it together and using the power of friendship and teamwork, Yay. we're going to get through it. <laughs> Uh, so I have two little prompts here, which we can discuss. One of which is, uh, the first one is going to be really easy, and the second one is going to be a little bit more challenging. So for the first one, this is kind of the warm-up. What's cool about the Silk Road? Let's come up with some basic trade goods, imports, and exports for a community or country that 
uh, is located somewhere along a fantasy world Silk Road. Now, mm. do you want to start at the origin point of the Silk Road or at the end point or somewhere in the middle? Somewhere in the middle. Okay, cool. So you have... I really feel you are relying on a higher lo- uh, knowledge level about the Silk Road than I actually possess here, What do you Alex? mean? Do you mean that you don't have extensive <laughs> knowledge of the Silk Road? Is that what you're telling me right now? <laughs> I went to medical school. Oh. I have never studied any of this before. I didn't go to life. medical school cold. and I know all about the Silk Road. <laughs> It's okay, okay, fair. Yeah, fair. you see, fair. you see, fair. we got this, we got this. It's basically a long trade route with cool, expensive things passing through the town all the time, and foreigners yeah. wandering through, and all of their horses need reshoeing, and they mm-hmm. need more grain to feed the camels, and that kind of shit, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I think that was about the level of knowledge I had of the Silk Road, i.e. long trading That's route. all you need to know, and from there you just sort of logic it out. From first principles. Can can we have some comment? Sure, you can, can we do comment. I think you're getting a little bit too <laughs> detailed. Like, let's look at a this bigger picture. This is Macy. Picture. She needs. So <laughs> she needs characters. Okay. So what are our uh, economics? So what are our economic forces? Is that what you're asking? I'm first of all. Let's pick a any kind of trade good. What sort of trade good do you like? What's interesting to you? What's cool? Ooh. What is this town? Well, dragons. Like... Dragon eggs. Dragon eggs. Okay, sure. We c- it can be dragon eggs. Are they <laughs> fresh dragon yes. eggs? Are these like hard-boiled dragon eggs? Are these like, you know how you, uh, <laughs> for Easter, you poke holes in an egg and then blow out the insides? Are these like Fabergé dragon no, no, no. eggs? What are these? These are going to hatch in six months if the merchants don't get them there on time. I mean, they're probably going to hatch in six months anyway. This is fair, but like they're going to hatch in the wrong place. Okay, so and, these and are say that these are fertilized conditions that have to be okay. So, met. so these are going to be fertilized dragon eggs. So these are are kind of a livestock that we're transporting. Yes, we're it's transporting like livestock. Livestock in a box, as it were. It's like tamagotchis. Yes, sure. <laughs> I'm just imagining a dragon egg that's got a little like readout window that's telling you what's <laughs> happening. Like how how happy is the little dragon inside? Is it asleep? Assorted fertilized fantastical eggs. Okay, cool. So basically livestock in a box. <laughs> so what that's our that's our main export. So we must have a lot of like cool magical creatures around. So I'm thinking that like this town is located somewhere in a harder to reach place. Mm-hmm. Uh or maybe like along a mountain pass where the mountains around us are mostly like really difficult to traverse and this one mountain pass brings the whole silk road past our doorstep and we sort of shove our livestock in boxes um onto the trains as they pass uh but no one else can really reach the the landscape around without going mm-hmm. through a lot of a lot of trouble so that's so we're saying that these are special sort of high country dragons that are greatly in demand on the yes. other end of the road right or they're in demand because they're hard to access basically which is a basic economic principle is that harder to get at means more worth correct correct so what's our main import we can't grow many grains up here in the mountains probably true uh like for ourselves to goods we like those um we like to have clothes we like to have clothes yes we probably Let's see. We've. It sounds like we have maybe borderline domesticated these dragons. Mm-hmm. Yep. 
I'm thinking kind of like falcons where like we keep them, but they're not really tame. And then we just like take the eggs. So we're going to need something to feed the dragons. Now, do we have our own herds of goats and sheep which do well in the mountains or are we importing things from elsewhere? Also, how big are the goats? I think we have goats. Okay. We're definitely a mountain thing with goats, but that means that we haven't got, if we don't have much in the way of sheep, then we definitely want to import woolen clothing. Cool. Cool. This is great because what we're building here are local markets and far-off travellers who come to get the dragon eggs, whereas we are trading our cheese and our goatskin leather with the other village just a little bit further down the mountain that maybe can grow grapes because it's a little bit warmer down there. Yeah. And then you have, um, if they're coming from far, far away and they want to buy things from us, what are they paying for it with? Are they paying for it with grain directly or is there some form of currency that we can use to buy the luxury goods that we want from them? Um... I think that's going to depend on a lot of factors such as who currently has the like what nation currently has the great amount of great, greatest amount of socioeconomic hegemony in this and that's getting a little bit more deep into the question than I was intending as just a warm up um, um because like if there is like some big powerful influential nation at one end or the other or both ends of the silk road we may Mm -hmm. indeed be accepting their currency as something that we recognize we can use later on we may operate as something of a trading post for exchanging money if we have if we're sort of in the middle and we have lots of people going past we probably see a lot of different kinds of money so when people are going from point a to point b they might want to exchange their point A money for point B coinage that they can use over there. So we might be mm-hmm. making a little bit of cash uh, in that method as well. But what do we use within our town, though? Do, does that mean that we use an external currency just because there's a lot of it floating around? Or do we have a local currency as well that uh, we cannot actually use to trade with other people, but you can use to trade within our own town? My guess would be that we in our own community would probably accept lots of different kinds of coinage because mm-hmm. being a significant trade hub like this, yes. like a, a major stop on this Silk Road, um, we're going to see a lot of coinage. We're going to recognize that it has value. We're going to say, yes, I know that I can use this again to pay for something else. So we're going to have lots so, of different kinds of stuff. So even small storeholders would be quite good at doing currency conversion in their head. Yeah, I would say so. At least like everybody would have some rough idea of the common, they would be able to recognize the most common currencies that they would see and have a rough idea of what equals what. And there would probably be a little bit of barter or haggling involved mm-hmm. in using the coinage. It would, rather than using it to pay for something, you would use it as a barter good Mm. rather than Mm. as a currency, as it were. And if you have different people coming through at different times, like if there's an expected caravan coming through from a particular place with a particular type of goods, then maybe the current people might want to store up that particular type of currency at particular times of year in order to be able to trade when those people come through the town. So there could actually be a fluctuation in the value of different types of currency based on the time of year. Yes, that's true. And once fluctuations start happening you start getting people who are more specialized in dealing with currency and keeping track of the fluctuations cool so any any other points that you want to make with that or any other just one last one i think there's probably going to be a significant trade hub for the local folks to come in around as well so there's probably going to be temporary lodging and inns and things like that oh definitely can there be a giant something that's been built on the side of the road as a tourist trap (laughs) 
Can we have a giant mechanical dragon? Sure. Yes. You can have a giant yes, mechanical and you, dragon. And you pay one, whatever the aversion, the local version of a gold is for the children to like climb up inside it. Freya's fired. The podcast is cancelled. <laughs> If you have driven around northern Queensland, we have the big pineapple, we have the big banana. Like, if there's something that's big, then your children can pay to go inside. How does everyone afford a gold? Okay, just for, for, like, some perspective here, I'm going to tell you about the currency system of the Dutch Golden Age because I happen to have it convenient right here. So you have three different kinds of coins. You have the duit. You have the Stoivers and you have the Gilders. Everyone knows about Gilders. Everyone has heard of Gilders. So one Gilder is, or gold, quote unquote, is worth 20 Stoivers. And one Stoiver is worth eight Duit. So one Duit is worth, wait for it, 160. That's right. hundred. So <laughs> one Gilder is, I laboriously do math. It's very hot in this room right now. It's extremely oh, hot in this room. Don't leave me alone are you, are you a discworld troll a little bit does your ability you, to do maths go down when your there's body a reason that up? i left florida and decided to move to live in massachusetts instead and that's because at least half of the year i'm complaining about the cold instead of the heat listen i'm just always complaining about something so but no so, it, it wouldn't be a goal to climb the dragon. No, we accept it would be that. like two pennies it'd be half a cup of grain it would be yes so, Something. so yeah. just for, for perspective here, uh, I have a citation which says that a bleaching girl, like a laundry girl, earned eight stoivers a day. That's not bad. So, no, it's not, it's not bad. A, sh- a ship's carpenter or a skilled artisan would earn 30 stoivers a day. So you want to be, and usually people were spending about 30% of their income on food. So you could buy like a pair of small fish for a duit mm-hmm. or... Well, now I want to play devil's advocate and say that this is a coin that is called a gold. It is not made of gold. It had equivalent value to one, you know, the same size coin made of gold. But due to inflation <laughs> over time, it is now a very reasonable uh, cost of a small child climbing a giant tourist I train. see. I see. She's got you there. But I think this is possibly a good opportunity to jump on to <laughs> unintended consequences, if that's all right. Sure, yes. What was the second question? I think we don't have time. And it was going to be a really hard one. I was going to ask you, um, the, just maybe I'll give this prompt to our dear listeners. So, dear listeners, if you would like to play this game, tell me about a fantasy economy where the economy, this is the economy of a community that hasn't invented numbers yet. <gasps> yeah, that was going to be fun. That was going to be a lot of fun. Alex, See, I okay, think you could no, do that no. if you did the we're magic let system. Let play. Yep, let, 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 let the listeners, listeners play. play. Please send this to us either Please on uh, email or Tumblr or tell us about it on Twitter. But I thought of this as a very, very evil prompt, and I was going to throw it at Freya and Macy and watch them squirm. But now I will watch you squirm, dear listeners. Yes. Come tell us about it. I really want to hear what Tell you us about the economy of a community that hasn't invented numbers. Yes. Go. And I am going to leave us with some... Um, <laughs> entertaining unintended consequences of economic shenanigans sure uh because the thing with economics is that it's it's it greases the wheels between things economies do correct they they facilitate trade they they lubricate negotiations oh i see what you did there (laughs) take a drink take a drink so 
there's this great example in Braudel's Structures of Everyday Things, which is a brilliant textbook on historical economics and the origins of money and capitalism, kind of. Mm, mm, all my favorite things. Are you okay? All my favorite things. Yes. So first you note that food costs wealth. So when a country has too many mouths to feed, it puts pressure on the engines of the nation and it drives things like immigration. It causes the government to want people to leave the country. It can cause them to put pressure on particular populations, persecutions of particular groups. And this has been an engine of a great deal of harm across the centuries. So this isn't necessarily just caused by food, right? If you're designing a world or thinking about a fantasy world or a fanfic world, you can choose your own resource that you want to constrain. But if you do choose food uh, to drive your population movement, there are some very entertaining anecdotes from 18th century France in which the growth of population was so high that French gentlemen were taking extreme pains to invent types of sex that would not involve sperm making contact with an egg. Gross. There's a lot of references to, um, yes, decorating the ground, gross. shall we say. Very gross. Very <laughs> gross way to put it, Macy. Thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. But if you're designing something, uh, an economy, you can do a lot worse than just picking up the lower tiers of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So food, water, shelter and mapping out how the different classes achieve those needs, like in time where our characters can't achieve food or the daily rent without risking their life by spending their minutes so that they don't have enough minutes to live off of. Um, if you're doing this with fragments of soul or memories of your past is your currency or promises to the Fae are your currency, how do you motivate the different stratas of society to give up this precious thing. And I think Freya had some entertaining anecdotes from some of her research she was going to mention. Yes, so this is less to do with building an economic system, but again, those ideas that funny things can happen <laughs> when pressure is placed on an economy in interesting areas. And literally the only thing I know how to talk about is the wool industry, because <laughs> I did some research quite a lot of research on the wool industry when I was drafting my novel because one of the main characters is involved in wool production. And I ran into some fun things to do with how politics and e economy can uh, intertwine and what happens when consumption is legislated in order to try and boost a particular type of economy. And the best example about this from the wool industry is from the history of the wool uh, production in England, where in the late 16th century, it was legislated in across all of England that everybody had to wear a woolen cap to church on Sundays. That was just a thing. It was now against the law to not wear a woolen cap, and it had to be made of English. I, I would, I would apologise for my nation, but it is also actually still mandatory in Leicester to do bow and arrow practice every Sunday. Like literally mandatory. Yes. Huh. Yes. Technically, we have a lot of laws. Okay, we have a You've lot been of around laws. for a long time. <laughs> yes. You do have a lot of laws. So there was this thing called the Wool Act in 1699, which essentially happened because England panicked about the fact that they had this wide-reaching empire that they couldn't keep their fingers on properly, uh, which was suddenly producing a whole lot of wool and selling it to people and making their own money. 
and we didn't want the colonies to have their own money. So the Wool Act said, nope, you have all the colonies have to only sell their wool to British markets, who will then process it and sell it on and essentially sell it back to you in the form of woolen goods. So that was about crippling the colonies and trying to keep their uh, independent economic power down. And But then you have things like, because England was so uh, protective of their sheep and the quality of their uh, wool flocks, you had the creation of a crime called owling, which was smuggling wool or smuggling sheep out of England, usually into France, but also into America, in a deliberate, blatant attempt to either get the raw wool to the people who were better at doing stuff with it in you know Florence and France and places like that, or to increase, improve the bloodlines of the sheep producing wool in those places, because the setup was England made the best wool, but they didn't have people who were particularly good at making wool products, so everyone knew that the best would happen if you got English wool to someone who could make beautiful products out of it. But all of the English wool manufacturers said, no, 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 we, we want to keep the good wool here, even though we're not very good at doing things with it. And so it was illegal for that wool to then leave the country without extremely high tariffs. That is wonderful. Isn't it beautiful? But why is it called why owling? It? I don't know. <laughs> Wikipedia wouldn't tell me. I think it's something to do with, you know, smuggling at night and things mm. like that. Oh. It's a whole crime with its own name. That is wonderful. And it, was, <laughs> and it was punished by having your left hand chopped off and nailed Jesus. up in a public place. That's... So did you know, did you know that it is, okay, yes, I mean, that is entirely in character for my stupid, stupid, bloody country. Um, but... <laughs> It is still to this day a thing that veterinary students, certainly at the University of Edinburgh where I went, get let out of classes two weeks earlier than everybody else so they can go home and help with the lambing. Aww, that's, beautiful. that's really cute. Is it, have you seen how giving birth works? Yeah. Yeah, cute. Uh, yeah Freya oh. has. Freya has. <laughs> I'm not, yeah, Freya, you know why I'm saying this to Alex's Oh, I mean, lambs are cute. That's what I'm saying. Is that lambs? lambs are cute? Yes, like lambs one are... week later result is very cute. If you would like an interesting movie involving the non-cute side of lambing, but also an adorable gay <laughs> love story, you should yes. watch God's Own Country. I'm Ooh, on board. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, not fantasy at all, just delightful. Shall we go to Alex's Fun Facts Linguistics Corner? I love this how corner. Many, how many Alex corners are there going to be by the end of this show? So many corners. Listen, we're in a pentagon. I think, we're in, a big, I think we're in more than a pentagon. We're in some kind of polyhedron. Yes. Oh, God. I'll just keep, I'll just keep adding <laughs> corners as they, as they come that's, up, that's as they're exactly, relevant. That is exactly how Euclidean mathematics <laughs> Correct. <works. laughs> so Alex's Fun Facts Linguistics Corner this week has to do with, uh, we've mentioned the impact of money on language before. We talked about the language of the movie In Time and its use of time-based idioms. So there's a couple words in our language, many words in fact, but we're just going to talk about two of them today, which have their roots in talking about money. So of course, uh, salary, we're all familiar with this, we like getting paid, derives from the Latin sal, which means salt, or more accurately, salrius, which means of salt. Now, I checked with our local Roman historian, <laughs> Tim. Hi, Tim. Shout out to Tim. And Tim Yay! told me that the it's just a legend that the Roman soldiers were paid in salt. It's kind of a story that they told themselves about their own history uh, and that it never actually happened. Like soldiers probably got paid in coins. There is no evidence that they actually got paid in literal salt. So 
kind of sad, but also kind of cool. It's cool when people uh, tell stories about their own history. So we have uh, salary, which is of salt. And uh, salt was valuable both as a flavoring, but more importantly, as a way of preserving food. So it was very valuable in the pre-industrial age when people couldn't refrigerate anything, really. Uh, and then the second word mm -hmm. that we're talking about today is pecuniary, which means related to money and is derived from the Latin pecuniarius, meaning wealth in cattle. Uh, the word for cattle is, of course, related to the word chattel, both of which come from the Latin roots for capital. So the big conclusion that I'm trying to make here is that it's not all about the money, money, money. It's all about salty cows. <laughs> Have a good evening, everybody. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Be the Serpent, a podcast of extremely, extremely deep literary merit. We hope you enjoyed listening to us nerd out about economics. And hey, I bet you didn't expect a podcast to give you homework. Don't worry, the world building assignment is optional for extra credit. On the next episode, two weeks hence on the 4th of July, we will be discussing epics which is basically an excuse for us to shout at one another about our favourite life-swallowingly long fanfics, and also discuss why the fantasy genre in particular lends itself to stories of epic length. So, if you have a friend who might be interested in that, maybe give them a heads up. And in the meantime, feel free to continue the conversation with us. All our individual social media handles are listed on the show's About pages, and as always, we would love to hear from you. Questions? Comments? Breathless adulations? Contact us at serpentcast at gmail.com or at serpentcast on Twitter and Tumblr. If you enjoy the podcast, please remember to review us on iTunes. And by the way, we value you, possibly even more than gold.